the last two years, can you believe it's been over two years now of COVID? <laughs> last two years, I think most of us, if not all of us, have experienced some kind of, of quarantine that was like, that affected you personally, right? Um, in the beginning of the, this whole thing, we all were, you know, told to flat, stay home and flatten the curve. I guess we were all sort of in quarantine at that point. But throughout the last couple of years, maybe you've, uh, you've gotten sick, or maybe you've been in close contact with somebody else who got sick, and so you, you had to quarantine for 10 days or five days or whatever, whatever the rules were at the time for you to quarantine. How many of you experienced something like that personally over the last two years? Right? Most of us, right? Most of us. Um, I think that's uh, maybe going to be helpful this morning as, you, as we think about the text that we're about to read. Now that's, that many of us have experienced that sense of what it feels like to be isolated from other people, to be quarantined from others, particularly because of some kind of sickness or disease. Um, imagine if you were effectively quarantined every day of your life. Having experienced maybe just a little taste of that, most of us, I think we may have a new appreciation for what it would be like if that was your daily experience for your life. That's what we're going to see and read examples of people who are, who are living that reality every day here in chapter 5. And as we look at that, I think the reason why these accounts are included in the Gospels, why Jesus went and specifically did ministry to people who are experiencing that kind of isolation and quarantine, was in large part to, uh, to demonstrate a spiritual principle to all of us and, and maybe speak directly to where some of you, maybe, maybe your hearts are at even this morning. How many of us live with a similar mindset of, of isolation and quarantine? In other words, I can't go near others. How many of us live with that mindset on the daily in our relationship with God? For, for maybe reasons of, of guilt or shame that you carry. Maybe it's uh, significant. Maybe it's just a sense that I haven't, I haven't really spent much time pursuing the Lord and, and you know, he probably doesn't want to have a whole lot to do with me. I, I think pastorally, one of the things that I see most often in the lives, even of Christians, is that there's a, there's a, a, a common sense of Sort of, I feel quarantined. I feel isolated from God. I feel like there's some barrier between me and Him that I can't go near Him, that He may not want to come near me. And I, I, that being such a common experience for believers, um, I think that's where Luke is going to really speak to our hearts this morning as he talks to us about the ministry of Jesus towards those who are uh, isolated, those who are quarantined, those who are unclean, and give us a beautiful picture of Christ among sinners like us. How does Jesus deal with people who feel very far away from God? If you're feeling far away from God this morning, I hope you'll be tremendously encouraged. And if you're not feeling far away from God, I hope you'll still be tremendously encouraged because there will be times in your life where you may feel tempted uh, to, that you are far away from God, right? And we need to grasp these truths. We need to grasp these realities of Jesus' heart towards sinful people like us. Let me remind you of the geography of where we're at here. I put this up for you last week. It's just a little, little bit helpful in terms of understanding the ministry of Jesus in these early days. So recall Jesus is born down here in Bethlehem, right? Just south of Jerusalem in Judea. But he grew up in Galilee, this region that's kind of gold-colored. He grew up in the town of Nazareth. And a lot of the ministry that we're seeing in chapters around where we're at now here in chapter 5 occurred in Galilee and specifically around Capernaum, which is this town on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, 
This is where he's going to meet and call many of his disciples in this region. I just kind of wanted to get your mind back in that space. This is where we're at right now. Jesus is early ministry, and he's up in the, Gal- the region of Galilee. Uh, so when we read about different towns, just kind of a mental sense of like where he's at, uh, ge- geographically speaking here. And again, keep in, re- in mind that the various events recorded here in chapter 5, like last week, we looked at several different uh, sort of snapshots. They're snapshots of the ministry that Jesus was doing in that Galilean region in the early days of his public ministry. So we have certain examples of the kinds of ministry that he was doing, certain stories of encounters that he had with different people. But I think we can deduce from that that he was doing all kinds of things that probably weren't recorded in the Gospels of similar, uh, similar types of ministry in this region. This, was, this is what Jesus was doing. He was going around from town to town. He was preaching. He was teaching in the synagogues. He was, uh, he was bringing the word of God to the people. And then validating that ministry, he was also doing a lot of uh, healing and, and uh, taking care of physical needs within the communities. Now, these scenes that we're going to look at in chapter 5, I think when taken together as a whole, make for one of the clearest pictures of the gospel that we're going to come across. And when I say the gospel, I mean the saving grace and the loving mercy of God. One of the clearest pictures of that, those great realities that we could find in the Bible. Jesus meets with sinners like you and me in this chapter And what he says to them and what he does for them is something that we all need him to say to us and to do for us. So what I want to do is just kind of jump around in chapter 5. We're going to just take different scenes. um, And I want to just give you four thoughts about Jesus' ministry to sinners like us from these various scenes. Again, keeping in mind that, that, that he's come to to deal specifically with people who may feel very far away from God, very much in need of of love and forgiveness and cleansing, right? Four thoughts about Jesus' ministry to sinners like us from chapter 5. Here's the first one. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Now, we've been emphasizing kind of the the latter part of that statement over the last couple chapters, the the word repentance. We've been talking about the ministry of John the Baptist, uh, uh, calling people to a baptism of repentance, right? We've talked about what repentance means, what sin is, and how we need to turn from our sin and turn towards Christ. So in this sense, Jesus came to call sinners to do that, to repent. But the emphasis of this statement this morning is on the middle part, on the word sinners, He came to call sinners. He came for sinners, like you and like me, to call us to repentance. Let's look at verse 27 of chapter 5. It says, After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything... He rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. This here is the call of Matthew as one of Jesus' disciples. We're we're told here that his name is Levi. Levi was also known as Matthew. So we're seeing this call happen here. And we're told that his occupation at this time is that he was a tax collector. Now, with 21st century ears, we, we immediately think, that doesn't sound good. Tax collectors. Nobody likes the tax man, right? But we may not have a full sense of, of what that meant here in first century Palestine. So a tax collector, he in this context, was a Jewish person who was working for the Roman government to 
tax and to further extort his own people, other Jewish people, for the sake of the enemy occupying force. So if you're a tax collector in first century Israel, you are among the most despised people in society. You're considered a great sinner because you're a traitor. You're a traitor to God's people working for you know, the, the Roman government, not only to tax us, this occupying force that, that we wish wasn't here, but, but also the way that a tax collector made his income was by asking for more than what was actually due in taxes. And whatever more he could get, he pocketed for himself. And that's how he made his money. And many tax collectors made a lot of money doing that. So you have somebody who's very much in the eyes of society around a sinful person. So Jesus walks up, we're told, to this tax collector as he's sitting in his tax collecting booth. And I wonder if, if we could just kind of read between the lines here and imagine what might have been going on in Levi's mind and heart when this Jesus one who's already gaining a reputation for being a, a great Jewish rabbi, right? A great teacher, a man of God, stands before him in this tax booth and I assume just first looks at him. Could you imagine anyone having more piercing eyes, a more piercing gaze than Jesus? The one who... It's already demonstrated he can, he can read people's thoughts, right? Like he knows what you're thinking. Of course, we know he's, he's the Lord God. He knows everything about you. Could you imagine a more piercing gaze? And I just wonder what it might have been like for Levi in that moment to have this rabbi walk up to him and, and stop. And for Levi, he would have been very used to Jewish people stopping at his booth, usually because they were having to pay him something, and probably very used to hearing all the insults, all of the rejection, all of the, the disdain against him, right? And, and perhaps, you know, I don't know, maybe his heart had grown really callous to all that. Or maybe he was deeply wounded. I don't know. I can only imagine I'd be one of those two things by now, right? But here Jesus stops in front of him, and I wonder if he began to think, what's he going to say to me? What must this Jewish rabbi think of me? And then to hear Jesus just simply with that piercing gaze say to him what he least expected him to say. He didn't condemn him. He didn't insult him. He just said, follow me. Follow me. It demonstrates the heart of Jesus towards sinners like you and me, doesn't it? What would you expect Jesus to say to you if he walked up to you in the middle of your sin with those piercing, all-knowing eyes? And he just looks at us and he says, follow me. Follow me. Now the Pharisees, of course, are incensed by this. Levi not only follows him, but he throws a party for him. He invites all his friends. And guess who all his friends are? Other tax collectors. Sinful people. And Jesus is happy to go and be with them, to meet with them. And the Pharisees see this and they say, why would you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And the answer to the question is because with this Jesus who came to call not the righteous, but sinners to himself, there's no one who's beyond the pale. There's no one who's too far gone. There's no dark corner that's too deep for Jesus to reach into and to shine the light of love in. What does the Gospel of John tell us about Christ? As the light 
has shown in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. If you're feeling this morning like maybe you've been hiding off in a dark corner, aware of the sin in your life, maybe aware of the piercing nature of the gaze of God and wondering what his attitude towards you must be, we get this beautiful picture of Jesus who says, again, no corners too dark for me to reach into with my loving arms and call you to me and say simply, follow me. Follow me. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. If you're feeling lost this morning, you have a Savior who's seeking you out. He's not pushing you away. As great as your sin may be, his love is greater still. You know, there's a great song that we sing in church. Uh, we sing it a lot. We've sung it for many, many years. Amazing grace, right? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. This God who saves a wretch like me. It was written by a guy named John Newton. And near the end of his life, this is what he said. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but there's two things I remember. First is that I'm a great sinner. And the second, that Christ is a great Savior. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Yes, even you. Even me. But he didn't just come to seek you out. He came also to forgive you. And that's the second thing I want to look at this morning. Jesus has the authority to forgive our sins. Look over at verse 17. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teacher of, teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise. Pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on, and he went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This is one of the great stories in the Gospels for several reasons, not the least of which is because it tells us something about the dedication of true friendship, right? True friends. The lengths to which friends will go here to see this paralyzed man, this friend of theirs, to, to see him get help. These men not only de demonstrated tremendous faith in Christ's ability to heal their friend, but they had to go to some pretty amazing lengths to get their friend even in front of Jesus, right? We're told here that they bring him on this, this mat. So imagine these four guys carrying around a fully grown man who happens to be paralyzed, a paraplegic man, carrying him on this mat, getting to this home where Jesus is inside teaching. There's this great crowd there. They can't get him through. So we see them going up to the roof. We're told that they peeled back the, the tiles on the roof. In, in the Greek, it's literally, they de-roofed the roof, right? And, and, and you can imagine like what that might have been like for the people down below. All of a sudden, tiles are falling on your head, and you're looking up. What is going on here? And these guys popping their head in through a hole and dropping their friend down. I mean, tremendous. 
incredible energy expended for the sake of their friend. So just as a side, uh, I mean, great application question for us. What lengths are we willing to go to get our own friends and neighbors to Christ? These guys demonstrated tremendous uh, love for their brother here. So it's a great picture of that. It's also, of course, one of the great miracles of Jesus' ministry. When we read in verse 26 that the people who saw this exclaimed, we have seen extraordinary things today, we should say that is the great understatement of all time, right? Luke doesn't even put a, an exclamation point at the end of that sentence. Did you notice that? I would have, right? We've seen extraordinary things today. We should pause and, and, and recognize the incredible nature of what just happened. Incredible miracle here. Miracles of healing are indeed extraordinary, right? So a great, a great account here. But like we discussed last week, Jesus again here reminds us that the miracles are not the focus of his ministry. They're not the focus of his ministry. They serve as pointers, great pointers, extraordinary pointers, but pointers indeed to a greater reality, certainly the greater reality of life in the kingdom of God, where there will be no disease or sickness or disability, right? But more immediately, they point to the reality of Jesus' mission on earth. And we talked about this last week. We see it here again in chapter 5. The mission of Jesus on earth is to forgive the sin in humanity that's responsible for, that has caused all of the brokenness that we see throughout creation. Jesus takes this opportunity to deal with a paralyzed man to show us that we're all paralyzed by an even greater spiritual problem. He doesn't talk about the man's physical paralysis. He just says, man, your sins are forgiven you. That is not the response that anybody expected in that moment, right? His friends were probably like, um... We just busted a hole in the roof expecting you to heal him. Sin's forgiven. That sounds great, but, and like the Pharisees, I'm sure everybody around could be saying, how do you prove that? The Pharisees asked two questions. The second one is spot on. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's true. And of course, Jesus reveals his divine identity by asking a question of his own in response. He says, look, anybody, effectively, yes, can claim to forgive sin, but only God can accomplish it. So what's easier? I'd say this guy, your sin's forgiven, or if I tell him to actually stand up and walk, he's been paralyzed. And hence the miracle of healing to validate the claim of his authority not just to heal, but to forgive, right? To forgive. Verse 24 is the crux of the whole scene. Jesus wants us to know that he has the authority on earth to forgive sins. So we talked about he came to call sinners to follow him towards repentance, right? Here we see that he has the authority to forgive them. To forgive them. Forgiveness is a word that I, I wonder if, if, if we really understand it. We all have a sense of what it means, but we, we use that word maybe too casually in lots of different contexts. What does it mean for us to be forgiven by God for our sins. If we look through Scripture, there's, there's all these beautiful metaphors that are used. And, and, and one of the ones that I, I, I think is, is really helpful is this picture of our, uh, our slate, if you will, being wiped clean. I know this is a, a younger crowd, and you guys live more in a digital age. But anybody remember the old Etch-a-Sketch toy? Right? This little, looks like an iPad, but there's nothing digital about it, right? It's about that size. 
and you have the knobs and you can turn, you can draw on it, right? And if you're like me, what you draw on the Etch-A-Sketch usually looks pretty bad, <laughs> right? I want to draw a car. That doesn't look like a car, right? Kind of a good metaphor for our lives, right? We have these Etch-A-Sketch lives where we, we eke out all these different things that at the end of the day can look pretty ugly. It's a good picture of what sin looks like. If you've seen a really poorly drawn Etch-A-Sketch, this is, this is a great visual image of my sin. So what does forgiveness do? Forgiveness is God taking that Etch-A-Sketch and turning it over and giving it a shake. And of course, when you shake an Etch-A-Sketch and flip it back over, what do you see? Perfectly clean slate, right? Better than digital deletion, by the way. Because digital deletion, there's always that fear that that hacker guy can still go into my hard drive somewhere and find what I deleted, right? You can't do that on an Etch-A-Sketch. And you can't do that with the forgiveness of God. When God forgives you, he wipes the slate clean and it is untraceable. It's gone. Psalm 103 says, when he removes our sin, he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. Micah 7 says that he casts our sin in forgiveness. He casts it to the depths of the oceans, into the bottom of the sea. We're told there that he tramples it underfoot and that he will remember our sins no more. That's a beautiful picture for those of us who know our sin and come to him for forgiveness. God will remember my sin no more. You say, how's that possible? How can God forget anything? Well, to say that God forgets our sin, that he won't remember it anymore, it doesn't mean that he can't recall what we've done. It means something better than that. It means he will never bring it up again. He will never use it against you. Hold it over your head. He has forgotten it in that sense. Wiped your slate clean. Cast it to the depths of the ocean. Trampled it underfoot. Is that hard for you to believe? Maybe like me, sometimes you say, I can't not remember my sin. I carry the guilt of my sin. And, and, and even though I know theologically that through Christ my sin has been forgiven, I can, I can remember it. I can hold it over my head. You know, the fact that you can remember your sin is not necessarily a bad thing. You will always remember your sin. Even when we get to heaven, I think we'll remember our sin. But it's in the remembrance of our sin, coupled with the right understanding of the tremendous grace and mercy of a forgiving God who says, I won't hold it over you, that we find our joy. To remember my sin and then remember that Christ has truly erased it. That's the, the joy of freedom, right? And Jesus says, I have authority to grant that forgiveness. Why does he have authority? Because our, our sin is against him. The only one who has authority to forgive is the one who's been sinned against, right? Jesus has been sinned against as God, but he says, I have authority to forgive, and he does. Jesus came for sinners, and he has the authority to forgive our sins. Now, having said that, I think we can recognize that authority and will are two different things, right? Just because he has the authority to forgive our sins, does it mean that he's willing to? I found over, again, many years of pastoral ministry that Christians don't usually struggle with the doctrine of forgiveness. 
If I explain to them what forgiveness is, they can usually say, yeah, yeah, I understand that, I get it. They can sort of mentally assent to that. But what I find very often is that they will fail to believe it applies to them. Right? That God would, would, would really wipe my slate clean because of the level of guilt and shame that so many of us carry so deeply in our bones. So if you're getting that he has the authority to forgive but not sure if he's the will to forgive you, we need to read on. Thirdly, in Luke 5, Jesus has the will to make us clean. Verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand. Now stop there. That didn't shock you like it would have shocked the people who were there. Because a man with leprosy was a man who was indeed unclean. To be diagnosed with leprosy meant that you were shut out. You really were isolated. You were cut off from the people. And in fact, in the Old Testament, you were put out of the city. You were put out of the gate. You were put out of the security of being with the people of God and in the presence of God. And you were relegated to this life of isolation where you literally had to walk around crying out, unclean, unclean, unclean. Because if anybody got near you, they could be contaminated by you and they would become unclean. You couldn't touch a person with leprosy. If you touched them, you would be unclean. You would be cast out. You would be isolated. So when this man with leprosy comes up to Jesus and says, if, if you will, you can make me clean, he's professing a tremendous amount of faith and confidence in Christ and who he is. And when Christ turns and reaches out to him, And I stopped right before it says, he touched him. Anybody who knew anything about the law and cleanliness would have been freaking out at the sight of Jesus even motioning towards this man. Jesus, don't do it. Don't touch. If you touch him, you'll be unclean. And again, I wonder how many of us feel like that's God's response to us. God, if you will, could you? uh, No, you you can't touch me. God, if you touch this, this is, again, I'm beyond the pale. I I would defile you. I would defile the church. Lord, I'm untouchable. Psalm 44, 15, the psalmist says this, All day long my disgrace is before me. All day long, shame has covered my face. Do you live in a constant state of shame? Defilement. I'm too dirty. Unclean. 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 Listen. I stopped short. We've got to keep reading here. Jesus is not just able to cleanse you. He's willing. He's willing. Lord, if you can... If you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one but to go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. 
Again, Jesus responds to him, of course, I am willing. I will. Be clean. Be clean. Throughout the book of Luke already, we've seen various prophecies from Isaiah and other prophets in the Old Testament that have been pointing to Jesus and fulfilled in Jesus. And here we see the fulfillment of the eternal covenant of peace that we can read about in Isaiah chapter 54. Listen to this. This is what Isaiah says there. He says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth. Because with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The eternal covenant of peace, the looking forward to the messianic day, to the salvation of God, and the promise to the people is, you won't be ashamed anymore. You won't be confounded anymore. You won't have to remember all of that, because I'll have compassion on you. I will redeem you. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I will. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Do you understand the depths of your forgiveness in Christ? That it's not just your guilt that he takes away. It's the shame that accompanies your guilt. It's the sense of uncleanliness that, that gets deep into your bones and makes you feel that even though you can understand the doctrine mentally, you can never, you can never feel, it, feel it in your heart. You can never apply it to you. And, 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 and in these incredible pictures, we're, we're shown that that's never true. No matter who you are, what's your past, how far gone you are, if Christ comes to you and calls you to follow him and says, I will forgive you and cleanse you, you are clean. This doctrine of forgiveness and cleansing is at the very heart of the gospel. And I want you to get this. It's not just a matter of divine decree. It's a matter of divine desire. God desires this for you. He desires to come to you and to find you and to forgive you and to cleanse you and to embrace you. That's the heart of Christ for sinners. You're not at arm's length. You don't have to fix yourself. You just simply have to come and say, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And he will say to you, I am willing. That's beautiful. But you know what? There's one more step of God's grace that we see here in Luke chapter 5. We've already seen the grace of God to seek out sinners, to forgive us, and to cleanse us of our sin. But his work in us doesn't end there. Because we may still ask this question, now what? I have this past, and I know I've been forgiven, and I've been made clean. Now what? And the answer is the fourth thing this morning. Jesus has the intention of making us useful. Not just forgiven and cleansed, but useful. A new life, a new purpose. Look at the beginning of the chapter. This is the call of Peter. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, again, that's the same as the Sea of Galilee, which we saw on the map. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter, 
he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and we took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. And their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. That's a lot of fish, right? When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Why, why did Peter do that? Right? You'd think he'd be like, wow, thank you for all these fish. I'm going to make a ton of money. No, he, he clearly recognizes the miracle that's just happened to him. He clearly recognizes the divinity of Christ in this moment. And when he recognizes the divinity of Christ, he's immediately uh, unblinded to his own unworthiness, right? He's immediately aware, I'm standing in the presence of righteousness. That means I am unworthy and he drops to his knees and he says depart from me a sinner which is a right response except for peter yet doesn't understand the grace of god because the grace of god as we've seen is a god who comes for sinners god who comes with the authority to forgive them and the willingness to cleanse them and here we see another sinful human being on his knees saying I can't be in your presence, God. What does Jesus say to him? Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. Luke doesn't go into detail here about all of the work that was happening in Peter's mind and heart in this moment. We get to see Fortunately, lots of things in Peter's life. We have something in common with all of these accounts. We have a person who's a sinful person. Again, just like you and me. Who comes face to face with Christ and who expects something other than what he actually shows to them. Not one of them was expecting the grace of the forgiveness of sins. But this is what Jesus freely offers so he says to Peter, similarly, don't be afraid. And when Peter may be thinking in this moment, thank you for not, you know, making me feel, I have to feel like I'm afraid. <laughs> but whatever, whatever grace he was feeling in that moment, he, he may yet have wondered, like many of us do, but, but now what? I'm a sinner. You've come, you've, called me to yourself, but, but now what? You've forgiven me. Wonderful. Now what? And Jesus says, following me now, you have, a, you have a new purpose. You have a new identity. You have a new life. You have more than just forgiveness. You, you, you have usefulness. You are now a disciple. I'm calling you into this mission with me. I'm calling you into this ministry with me. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new has come. So I, I include this this morning. I, Luke includes this this morning. But I wanted to make a point to bring it to your attention. Because I, I know for many of us, if, if we struggle with this idea of, of the forgiveness of God and the cleansing of God, even if we can grasp the, the beauty of the grace of the gospel, we may yet wonder, do I have a future? And we see that Luke is intentional to make it clear in all of these accounts that yes, indeed, in following Christ, we always have a future. 
He calls us into usefulness for the kingdom. So he comes for sinners. He has the authority to forgive. He has the will to cleanse. And he has the intention of making us useful. One last really important question. How does Jesus accomplish all of that? Go back to verse 14. Go back to the scene with the leper. After declaring the leper clean, he says in verse 14 to the leper, tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. What what was happening there? In the law, back in Leviticus, you can read about this. If a leper was cast outside of the camp and for some reason was able to, to, to be healed, he would come to the priests. And the priest would then have to go through this whole cleansing ritual in order to restore that leper back into the full fellowship of the community and the full fellowship with God in the community. And so what that would look like was that the, the priest would take a couple of birds and have to go outside of the camp, outside of the gate. And he was supposed to kill one of the birds and take the blood of that bird and sprinkle it on the, the newly cleaned leper and then let the other bird go. It was sort of this picture of like this bird's uh, sacrifice and the sprinkling of this blood on you is a covering. It's a sin offering for you to me- make you clean. And then the other bird is like the, 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 the picture of the freedom that comes from that release, right? And that would be followed then by a similar sacrifice, a similar offering with a spotless lamb. So that, that was the picture. This, the, the leprosy was a, a picture of their uncleanness before God. It was A sin offering was needed. They had to go outside the gate, make the offerings, be covered by the blood in order to be cleansed and able to come back into the community. That's what Jesus tells this, le- this leper to do. The book of Hebrews, chapter 13 We're told of Jesus' ministry, and specifically his ministry at the cross. His sacrificial ministry, to be the one whose blood would cover the sins of humanity. And in Hebrews 13, verse 11, it says this, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. He's referencing the Levitical law. The sacrifices were made outside the camp, the sin offering outside the camp. Verse 12, he says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. How is it that Jesus comes for sinners, has the authority to forgive us, to cleanse us, and to make us useful again. Because Jesus is the one who went outside of the gate for us. Who took the wrath of God for our sin upon himself. And by his blood we are covered. We are made clean. Jesus absorbs the penalty of sin that we might be like that little bird set free again in the meadow, brought back into the gate, back into fellowship with God. John says in 1 John 1, it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. Jesus can take away your uncleanness before God because he became unclean for you. 
He can take away your condemnation before God because he was condemned for you. And that is the purpose of his coming from heaven to earth. Remember, we looked at his baptism and we asked the question, why did Jesus need to be baptized? He didn't need to be cleansed. He didn't need to repent. And the answer was because he was identifying with sinners. Count me among them. And here we see how he is counted among us. He takes our sin upon himself. He came to sinners to call us to repentance. He has the power to forgive our sins. He has the will to make us clean. And he has the intention of making us useful again. What does he ask of us? He says, follow me. Follow me. When he sees genuine faith, he'll look upon each and every one of you, every one of us, and say, man, or woman, or child, your sins are forgiven you. Let me pray. Lord, what a beautiful picture of your amazing grace. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to know the depths of the love of Christ. To know the reality of forgiveness of sin in Jesus. Thank you that Jesus came to absorb the wrath of God for our sins. Thank you that he was willing to go outside the gate and be the sin offering. That by his blood we could be made clean. And thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to us, that he came to seek and save the lost. He sought us out, no matter where we are, where we've been, what dark corner we're hiding in. He comes to the sinner with authority to forgive, the will to cleanse, and the intention to make us new and useful, Lord. And that is a beautiful, beautiful story. And for those of us who've looked to Christ and trusted in him, that is our story every one of us. So help us, Lord, to remember it, to believe it, to rejoice in it. Lord, if any of my brothers or sisters here today are struggling with a sense of guilt, a sense of, I don't know if this can fully apply to me, I pray that by your Spirit, you'll just keep pressing these words into their hearts. Jesus is willing to make you clean. He has the authority to forgive. Lord, help us to know that that's not just your decree, it's your desire. And then to come to you humbly and grateful and cleansed. Thank you for the beautiful gift of your grace. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood of Christ. We pray that in his name.